was well into seminary and therefore many, many years into my life as a Bible reader, when I began to feel that my theology had an Achilles heel, canon. I knew and loved and believed the Bible, but I felt I had little way of proving which books actually belonged inside its covers. Was it these 66? Was it more? Was it fewer? Then I came across a book that was an immense help to me. And today on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, I am going to talk to its author, Dr. Michael Kruger. After that, I'm gonna chat about the interview with some of my friends here at Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible Software, We'll talk about how we reacted as individual Christians the first time we encountered the possible existence of Bible books that didn't make it into the Bible. We'll talk about how we came to believe that the message of the 66 books of the Bible was indeed revelation from God. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit biblestudymagazine.com slash trial today. Dr. Michael Kruger, welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. And I have the first all-important question. Who are you? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, right now, I serve as the president and professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our theme on this first season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is biblical literacy. And as I think it was maybe Yogi Berra who once said, or Abraham Lincoln or Mark Twain, who knows, you can't be biblically literate if you don't know which books belong in the Bible and which don't. This is the question of canon, a canon being a rule or measure. And before I ask you some questions, I wanted to tell a little of my story encountering your work because for years, I myself didn't quite know what to do with this question of canon. I actually felt it was sort of my Achilles heel as a Protestant until I finally came across the book that pretty much answered all my questions. And more than once, I've been asked to write or teach on this topic of canon. And what I found myself doing was not just relying on this book, but basically stealing from it wholesale because... I haven't seen anything better on the topic. The author is you, Dr. Kruger, president of RTS in Charlotte, and your book is Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books. So first of all, thank you for writing that book. And second of all, thank you for coming on the podcast. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I appreciate those nice words. I, I'm not sure I, I could answer anybody's questions in, in its entirety, maybe, but um, uh, I, I hope it, that book's helpful for people. Well, perhaps that shows uh, my questions hadn't gone far enough. Maybe there are more questions to be answered, but the the concerns I brought to the book were definitely answered. Well, very good. That makes me happy because that's why I wrote the book. Let me lead into some of the content of the book through some questions that are more basic, and then we'll work up to some things that are not um, so highly academic, they're inaccessible, but just require some background knowledge that we'll try to establish. Are there any other viable candidates for New Testament or Old Testament books? You know, anything that we might be missing out on in our 66-book Protestant Bibles? Well, I mean, that is the foundational question for canon, isn't it? Which is, do we have the right books? Are, are some books missing? Um, and there's certainly been a long academic and 
religious conversation about that for generations. Certainly on the Old Testament side, the best candidates would be what, what are known as the Apocrypha or the Apocryphal books um, of the Old Testament. Uh, this is First and Second Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, and so on. And we all know that those were accepted finally by the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent. So yeah, there's a dispute over those between Protestants and Catholics. And on the New Testament side, there's what we call New Testament Apocrypha. And there's other books that were hovering on the edges there. Um, one might think of something like uh, you know, the Gospel of Peter or um, a book like the uh, uh, Apocalypse of Peter. These were books that, um, uh, you know, some people read and maybe thought were authoritative and, and certainly raised questions about whether we have the right ones. So we all approach the same, in a sense, options out there. There aren't an infinite number of options, but you and your book lay out some major models that Christians of various sorts use to select among the available possible books to justify the canons that they accept. What are those major models? Yeah, so my book, Canon Revisited, as you mentioned, lays out uh, three basic models for how people decide which books belong. Um, the first is the community-determined model, and as the name suggests, some people say, well, you know, that the church tells us what books belong. Um, the second model was the his, sort of historically determined model where someone says, well, no, we know which books belong by figuring out, you know, where they came from, their origins, their authenticity, if we can just get the historical evidence to show us the things we want to see. And then the third model, which is the one I advocate in the book, is the self-authenticating model, which in real short terms argues that you can know which books are, are canonical by the books themselves. So those are the three very broad models. And of course, I talk a lot about sub- uh, sets under each of those, but that's the lay of the land. Yeah. One of the more helpful points I remember getting out of the book, uh, is that it's not just the, uh, Roman Catholic church that uses a community determined model, but in a very different way, theological liberalism would say, yeah, well, these books just happen to be the ones that both created this community and kind of were created and gathered together by it. So the historical association between these books and that community is what we call canon. And of course, that would be unacceptable to me and to any anyone who believes in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. You want God's leadership in uh, determining what books belong. And now, surely, with a name like self-authenticating for your model, you've had people scoff at that very notion. And I would guess you've had times and you've had just kind of an elevator pitch opportunity to dispel their main objections. What do you say to someone who just blows that off initially to try to get them to reconsider? Yeah, what I usually remind them of is that uh, they may be correct in one sense, meaning that that most things in life in terms of uh, authorities, we, we are not self-authenticating, uh, meaning that we usually appeal to some other outside authority to vindicate and validate them. And that's actually the normal way life works. But what most people don't consider is, well, what do you do when you when you reach an ultimate authority, meaning an authority that there's nothing higher than? How do you authenticate that authority? Well, most people have never thought about that. But you, you when you start really thinking about it, you realize that there has to be some ultimate epistemological stopping point for authorities. And if something's ultimate, then it cannot be authenticated by anything other than itself. Because if it were to be authenticated by something other than itself, then it's not ultimate. So that that uh, inevitable reality begins to dawn on people, and they think, "Oh, okay. So if I'm if I'm talking about something like God's word, then I've got to think differently. I've got to think about how to authenticate an ultimate authority, and it just is a different category than what we're used to thinking in." 
That made me think of the verse, and of course you bring this up in your book from John 10. You know, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He says that they won't listen to someone else, you know, a hireling. Um, How do you use that verse in a discussion, in an argument like the one you just gave? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that verse is a great picture of what we're talking about. I mean, our argument is that when when we encounter a book that's from God, we recognize God's voice in it. Um, and that's obviously a spiritual exercise. God, by his spirit, helps us hear and recognize his own voice, just like a, a sheep would hear the voice of their shepherd. And so in that passage, Jesus is saying exactly that. If if you're my sheep and you have the spirit, you'll you'll recognize my voice. Now, on a human level, we do this all the time. And you know, think about it. If your wife gives you a call and um, you pick up the phone and she says it's me, um, you just sort of know immediately and intuitively it's her. You just recognize her voice. You don't go through some long reasoning process that get you there. It's sort of uh, something that just happens uh, intuitively. And I think that's an analogy, but it's a similar kind of thing with God's voice, is that if we're tuned into it, we can know it when we when we hear it. Now, John Frame is a big theological hero of mine. I happen to run his website, framepoitrus.org, and I just read his autobiography, and he mentions you positively as a student that he is proud of. Does your view of canon indeed have anything to do with Frame's apologetic method of presuppositionalism, where I've heard this very same argument, you know, you ask the question, by what standard do you make a judgment? And how do you justify the highest standard? There is no appeal beyond it, or isn't the highest one. So tell us briefly what presuppositionalism is, and how and whether it relates to your work on canon. Oh, absolutely. It relates to it. Of course, you know, if I were to categorize myself apologetically, I would be a presuppositionalist. Uh, And, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to think about that. But the main the main essence of it is that if you're going to understand the world world rightly, if you're going to interpret the facts correctly, you got to think uh, with God's mindset and his worldview in mind. You interpret the world through his lens, which means there's no neutral thinking. There's no sort of linear sort of just work your way uh, uh, to truth without thinking through a certain grid. Um, John Frame, of course, was a professor of mine, and I, I, I have a great respect and appreciation for John and, and love his work. Uh, he's really helped me think through what it means to be presuppositional and all the sort of layers of that. Um, and yeah, I think he had an impact on my book. I mean, I tell people all the time, if you notice I have triangles in my book and threes, I, I've got to give John the credit for that. You know, uh, if anybody has, has read much of him, you know that he loves triangles and, and loves triads. And and certainly uh, you can see those in, in Canon Revisited. When I first encountered Frame's triperspectivalism, I was a little skeptical. You know, I, I get a little tired of things that are too neat, too cute. But over and over throughout the years, I have found so many of his triads to be helpful. And I remember when I first picked up your book, now it's been a couple of years, but it's uh, still fresh. I definitely was seeing the same emphases. And for me, that was sort of confirming. This is, you know, it's not just that Frame has his own uh, idiolectic viewpoint, but he has uh, caused fruit to grow in the theology and the work of others. That was something else I appreciated about your book. Now, I want to test your and our listeners' patience for just a moment with a longer question, but I promise everyone it will be worth their while. Now, Peter Williams of uh, Tyndall House, Cambridge, this Evangelical Study Center, has said the following in a talk about textual criticism, and I wonder if you could comment on how and whether it applies to the issue of canon. He said, there's always going to be a gap Even if I had a photo of Moses coming down the mountain with the tablets from God, you could always say, what did he do before he came around the corner? There's always a gap. People can always say, what happened before the earliest thing? 
But what I want to say, this is William Still, is, look, I I can't prove that there's been no change. He's talking about in the text of Scripture. I don't need to prove that there's been no change because that's proving a negative. You can't prove a negative like that. He He says, I can say there's absolutely no reason to believe that there has been change in the text of Scripture. And that based on everything we know about transmission, if we extrapolate that back, you know, rather than say before our earliest witnesses, everything was very different. Instead, we see a huge amount of stability. I listened to that. I felt like it was clever and helpful and did apply to canon. I wonder if you agree and saw the same connection that I did. Yeah. And I think what what Peter's highlighting there is, is people put a very unreasonable level of expectation on the historical evidence that no one would ever be able to meet. And it's almost a guilty and less proven innocent model. And I think what he's saying is, well, no, I think it's innocent until proven guilty. I don't have to prove um, uh, that it's innocent. I think we start there. Um, and it's similar in canon. I mean, we, we can trace the canon back all the way to the middle of the, of the second century and arguably even to the first if you start looking at the New Testament texts themselves. And someone can always say, yeah, but what about over here? What about over there? What about the things we don't know? And, and, and very similar to what Peter's arguing there, we don't have to explain all the things we don't know. Given what we do know, um, it looks very stable, and it looks like we're seeing a trajectory that leads us to the 27 books we eventually get. So I, I think his point is a great one and applies to canon uh, very well. I don't know what order you're going to listen to these podcast episodes in from the Bible Study Magazine podcast, but if you followed our order, you may have noticed something. People like me who work at Faith Life actually use the products that we sell. I use Logos Bible software. I I did so long before I came to the company. I need Logos to do my work. I can't imagine my life as a Bible teacher without it. I have it open on my laptop, my tablet, my phone, and my desktop right now. And one of the many tools I turn to in Logos whenever I need it is the Canon Comparison Tool. This is a niche tool. You're not going to need it that many times. But when you need it for a Sunday school lesson or a Bible study or your own personal work, you need it. And Logos Bible Nerds went to the trouble of creating it for you. It's a beautiful way to compare the different scriptural canons accepted by the major Christian traditions. So when your teen Sunday school class says, my friend's Bible is different from ours, it has different books, you can say, take a look at this. I hate to say that Logos Bible software is a professional tool as if Bible teaching is just a job, but I choose the sense of professional which focuses on skill and knowledge and not on pay. If you are a true Bible nerd, you need reliable and powerful tools for Bible study. I use Logos Bible software. Check out our Canon comparison tool and many other tools. Just go to logos.com to check out our great base packages. If you like this podcast, you'll probably want at least Logos Silver or Gold. And listen for another ad a little later on that gives you an idea about another way to get into Logos with a special deal that we're offering. Something else he said in that talk is that if someone really did that, if before any available historical evidence that we have, you know, they made some massive changes to the text of scripture, they'd have to be both really clever and really well-financed, you know, in a day before air travel, how are you going to go around the entire ancient world and collect all the manuscripts that you want to suppress? 
and you know replace them with all the ones that you're going to advance. I would tend to think the same is true of canon. You know, immediately, uh, even before the books are known around the entire church, they're spread around the entire church, and that's just for the New Testament. The process had already is different in the, in, in the Old Testament because they had a centralized authority. But how could someone travel to, you know, every church out there and suppress the books that he didn't want to be in the canon? You know, who who are the people who are most questioning whether um, whether our canon is the result of just one party in the church that we now call Orthodox winning political battles, uh, and and really, if we could go back to the olden days uh, the, of the early church, we'd we'd see that there's a a much more fluid situation with multiple parties fighting for supremacy. Who is saying that? Uh, well, that all goes back to originally to Walter Bauer um, in his book Orthodoxy and Heresy and Earliest Christianity, and that is. Well, hey, look, you know, the, the canon you ended up with was just the canon of the theological victors. And in the early church, there were a bunch of different canons. And, you know, why would you think that that the canon you have is anything special? Um, and so it's an argument from diversity, right? Given the great diversity in the early church, there's no way you could think that your canon is the right one. Um, but but again, I mean, many people have responded to um, Bauer. And I think one of the responses is similar to what you said. It's a bit conspiracy theory-ish, you know? Um, that some it's all due to politics and machinations and some group sort of forcing their way uh, into the leadership roles. And it just sounds a bit too, too much like a modern conspiracy theory. Um, and, you know, Bauer's views have been critiqued roundly in a way that there's not a lot of reasons to think they have a lot of merit anymore. They still float around that magical invention we call the Internet. So it's a they good do. thing that they get answered on blogs like yours. Uh, back a little bit to presuppositionalism, and if that's a word unfamiliar to our listeners, um, I think that they still have encountered the idea, the concept, because there are people who argue for the Christian faith and will say explicitly, I'm going to set aside the Bible in my argument, and we're going to argue solely based on the evidence. And that's what presuppositionalism is trying to combat. That is sometimes called evidentialism. Nonetheless, presuppositionalists sometimes, in my experience, and I've been guilty of this, can become armchair apologists who think that because it all, you know, because our argument is based on first principles, we don't need to expend energy looking at the evidence and the details. And I think the very best presuppositionalists, in my opinion, are those who take their first principles drawn from the Bible, their uh, submission to the Lord as their covenant head, and go out and look at the world that God gave and try to make and try to put God's general and special revelation together. I felt like you did that when you talked about three criteria of canonicity that are drawn from the Bible but do involve looking at church history. You said providential exposure, attributes of canonicity, and the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Why do we need criteria of any kind if we have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit? Talk to me about the use of evidence in this discussion. Yeah, well, I mean, I think your first point is, is a good one, which is, you know, one of the weaknesses, I think, historically of presuppositionalism is they haven't done the, the heavy lifting on historical evidences um, and, and tend to think big picture. And you know, uh, you know, Van Til was often accused of not ever diving into the historical evidences. And to be fair to Van Til, he, he was a philosopher, not a historian. And he, he admitted that there's a place for evidences. Um, it just wasn't his thing. And so, yeah, I think, you know, wedding good historical evidences with a presuppositional framework is an ideal 
combination, something I've shot for in this book, I hope, and, and tried to do. Uh, now, uh, you asked about the, the, the three criteria of canonicity in my book. Um, yeah, in my book, I don't, I don't really call them uh, criteria of canonicity. Um, and that, that's actually, a, I think, a really important point because I, I take the term criteria of candidacy and don't really like the term because I think it sounds that, like- That's a more evidentialist viewpoint. Right. It sounds like you're standing over um, of the Bible and judging it. Um, what I talk about here are, are sort of uh, attributes of canonicity. In other words, the things that are in canonical books that the Holy Spirit helps us see. Um, and I like the term attributes of canonicity better because it doesn't sound like it's something outside the Bible that judges it, but I argue the attributes actually come from the Bible. And then you need the Holy Spirit to rightly recognize that they are there. Now, the key to that, though, is that the Holy Spirit is simply helping you recognize what is objectively really there. You're not, you're not arguing that the Holy Spirit is the reason you believe these books are from God as if you had some subjective experience. But rather, the Holy Spirit simply opens your eyes to what's already true of the Bible. And that's actually a really important point, because if we don't make that distinction, we end up sort of like a, a Bardian view or maybe even somewhat of a Mormon view. Very interesting and helpful. Now, you've also written a helpful series of blog posts that I've shared with friends, 10 basic facts about the canon that every Christian should know. I would definitely urge our listeners to go check these out. Which one or two of these 10 do you think needs the most emphasis today, whether because evangelical Christians commonly just don't know it or because it actually runs counter to what they've generally thought. Oh, wow. There's so many in that list. Um, I would say probably one of the most common misconceptions I, I get, and I certainly include it in this list, is Christians have this idea that when the original New Testament authors wrote that they didn't know they were writing scripture, that they thought they were just writing normal books that then later became scripture. And that's a very embedded idea within both the evangelical world and the broader academic world. And if you believe that, then canon is going to be a really hard thing, because what you have to believe is that when Paul wrote, he didn't know what he was doing in terms of authoritative books. He was just writing occasional letters or that when the gospel writers wrote, it was just sort of a bare historical document. And then only later, in fact, much later, did church did the, did the Christian church begin to like these books and value these books until finally someone said, you know what? These books are so great. Let's make them scripture. Okay. All in favor, say aye. Okay. Aye. And then you've got a canon. Now, once you start thinking that way, you realize that canon is really something the church does. It's really something that happens much later. And what I want people to think about is to flip that on its head and to realize, well, wait a second. There's good evidence that when these New Testament writers wrote that they consciously wrote knowing they were writing God-inspired books. And if so, you don't need the church to have a canon in terms of doing something later. You have one immediately as soon as these books are written. Um, and so the self-awareness issue is a big one. I think it's a paradigm shifter for people. And it's really important to get if they're going to understand canon rightly. And let's talk about the New Testament evidence for that. You know, not only do you have Paul, you know, leaning on his authority as an apostle repeatedly throughout his letters, but you have Peter referencing Paul's letters as graphe, you know, the technical term for scripture. Uh, would that be accurate? And would you add to that list of uh, references? Yeah, absolutely. Paul clearly writes with the authority of an apostle. Um, in 1 Corinthians 14, he even says very plainly that if you don't recognize my authority— uh, and that I that I deliver commands of the Lord to you, then then you ought not to be recognized. And so Paul says that he de delivers the commands of the Lord, and that he expects people to recognize that that's what he does. Um, and you know this is a, I think, great evidence for that. That the, the example of Second Peter quoting Paul's letters of Scripture is important too. And I think the gospel authors do this. This is a harder case to prove in some people's minds, but I I, I make the case, 
and I'm not the only one that's done it, that when they wrote, they thought they were continuing the biblical narrative. In fact, this is very clear on Matthew that he he had a genealogy and that he started his gospel with. And people are often confused by that and skip over it. But I think there's a real good indicator there that that is a marker of him continuing the Old Testament narrative into the New Testament phase. He's, he's continuing God's story and therefore understands himself to be writing a scriptural book. That is a really helpful point because it's easy enough to see that what he's doing is rooting the story of Jesus in history, but it's not just in history, it's in biblical history. He is continuing the story. Yeah, that argument I find very persuasive. Now, I uh, have not written nearly as many books and blog posts as you have, but I, I had a question that relates to a book I did write, Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And when I wrote it, I was both pleased and a little embarrassed to discover after publishing it, several writers who'd made precisely the same point I did, just not maybe at book length. And I had somehow missed these quotations or articles, but readers then found them for me. Have you had this experience with your work on canon? I mean, your book felt very fresh to me. I couldn't think of anyone else I'd read who'd said these things and made quite this argument. But that also makes me a little nervous. You know, where do you see your basic points being made by theologians of the past? Well, that's an interesting question. And, and I think part of the way I'd answer that is by saying that the core thesis of my book is nothing new, meaning the idea of a self-authenticating Bible is not my idea. Um, it's a very old idea. Um, arguably, you know, I would, I would make the case it's a scriptural idea, which makes it very old. But we have early patristic writers that talk this way, and certainly Reformation writers that talk this way, and then uh, you know early and modern theologians that talk this way. So the idea of a self-authenticating Bible is well-established, and I stand on the shoulders of many before me in that regard. Um, and I even document that in the book. I think what might be newer for people is the, is the way I package it uh, and, the, and the way I, I help apply it to canon. I don't. I don't know a lot of other works that apply it to canon, and I think maybe that's the thing that's that's a, that's that's more distinctive. Uh, but but again, you know, you never know if you've missed one, and that's always possible. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think so. I I think that is what is distinctive. And for what it's worth, you know, I would have been exposed to a fairly standard evangelical uh, series of courses in New Testament introduction and seminary. Uh, I've come to believe that my experience is. Uh, shared by many others, and yet I simply hadn't seen a more or less presuppositionalist viewpoint, self-authenticating idea uh, applied to canon. It really was not just fresh, but mind-changing for me, but it also slotted really neatly into other things that I'd been taught. It's one of those books that just sort of puts the missing piece in the puzzle, and I no longer feel like canon is my Achilles heel, and that is, humanly speaking, Thanks to you, Dr. Kruger, and I'd like to thank you for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Well, thanks so much. It's been fun chatting and talking about it, and I'm happy to be with you. I've got some friends in the studio here to talk about canon and about this interview we just heard from Dr. Michael Kruger of Reformed Theological Seminary. I've got Daniel Motley here from our, boy, what department are you in now, Daniel? I am in the Bible Study Products Division at Faith Life. So you put together the base packages mm -hmm. full of the books that our uh, Logos users love, including myself. And I've got 
Matthew Boffy, who's just about to come on as an editor at Alexum Press here in Faith, at Faith Life, our publishing arm, and Miles Custis of the what department? Instructional Media, formerly known as Mobile Ed. Tons of great video courses to check out, and these are gentlemen who serve in the church and have done some study of these kinds of issues. Bible study. Now, this whole season is about biblical literacy. And when I think of canon and biblical literacy, I think of an undergraduate a female friend of mine who, when I was a wise seminary student, came to me with a question. She was really kind of shocked and, I don't know, more curious than upset, but there's just an edge of fear in her voice when she said, wait a minute, I just ran across the Apocrypha. You mean to tell me there are other Bible-ish kind of books that aren't in the Bible? I wonder if you guys have any similar stories. How did you first encounter apocryphal, pseudepigraphal books? And how did you answer the question, why aren't these in my Bible? Yeah, I remember being in high school and reading books or watching a movie called The Da Vinci Code. And they mentioned uh, Gnostic Gospels, and they posited this idea that uh, at the Council of Nicaea, they all got together and decided to ban certain books and vote in what is considered the canon, the current canon of the Protestant Church. So uh, I remember just doing a lot of research and remember reading a few of the Gnostic Gospels, and it was just uh, just very out there, very wild. I remember reading the Gospel of Thomas, and while it seemed it seemed like it was Jesus. There was something a little off. He seemed more like a like a cynic philosopher than he did like the, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think that was my internal, like, I don't know, my internal spirit, I suppose, that was like, ah, something's not quite right. And I just, just looking at more of the history of the Gnostic Gospels, you start to realize that, oh, this is like really, really drenched in Greek philosophy as opposed to like the Jewish scriptures that the Gospels are are drenched in. It's just a different world. And I think that's when I, just, I, I started to realize that while there are there's the literature that exists, and obviously there were Christians who were trying to marry Platonism or marry the Greek philosophy with the Bible, um, these are so outside the realm of what the Bible is that uh, they exist apart for a reason, and early Christians recognize that as such, and that felt pretty good to me. There is one verse in the Gospel of Thomas that I have found useful when we're walking. I'm walking with my kids, and there's like a dead cat by the sidewalk. There's a verse that's where Jesus supposedly said, be passers-by. Oh. Like, you know, just keep on going, kids. Don't stop and look. Um, but these really strange, uh, you use the word um, cynical, I think. Like cynic philosopher. Like Got he just, it. he sounds like a, like a, like a Greek philosopher from a Greek school. Like he's under a stoa or in this, you know, he's, he's not, he's not out and about in Galilee. He's, he's somewhere in Greece. There's a different mm -hmm. feel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like our Jesus. Yeah, exactly. You know, not that everything Jesus says is perfectly easily understood. Mm -hmm. He is on this different plane, but then he's saying things that are just flat out. I mean, here's the scholarly word weird <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, that's right. in these, uh, uh, Gnostic Gospels. Anybody else had similar experiences? Matthew? Yeah, definitely. Actually, you know, I was thinking about a post, Mark, that you wrote a few years ago, maybe, about um, when you heard a quote attributed to C.S. Lewis and you knew it was not C.S. Lewis because it just <laughs> didn't sound like him. I've had similar experiences when I've read parts of uh, the apocryphal or pseudepigraphal, pseudepigraphal books where I'm like, that just doesn't 
fit. Like, you know, I, so really like that sense of like, no, nah, there's just something in me that, or something I can just tell this is off. And of course, there's all the the councils and all the decision making that happened early on of people, you know, sensing, OK, what's canonical, what's not. Um, but it makes when you read them, I think you just know, OK, these are different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember having kind of a vague impression of the Old Testament Apocrypha specifically, which are in some traditions, canons, like the Catholic canon and whatnot, and just kind of having an impression that these, there's something wrong with these, there's something bad about these to be <laughs> avoided. Um, that's why I have that sort of early impression. And then as I got into, you know, biblical studies more in detail, I realized they're not, you know, bad per se, they're just not scripture. And there's actually some interesting things we can learn from. Some of Certainly. them are just straight history and there's pretty fascinating. Um, and some of them were, you know, Jude quotes from some pseudepigraphal works. Um, they clearly teach us something about the background of Judaism in the first century. So we're talking about some different categories of books here, and we want to make sure not to get them mixed up. The Gnostic Gospels are not part of the Apocrypha. They come from a time period well after the New Testament, you know, as best we can tell. These things are really lost in the mists of history, but they clearly are very old. But the Apocrypha um, is from a different time period before the New Testament. And in particular, there's a book in the Apocrypha that you can look up if you get yourself a 1611 King James Bible. It's in there. The book of 1 Maccabees is an awesome story Mm -hmm. of faithful people who stand up to persecution against belief in Yahweh. And I think Christians can read that with, you know, great edification. I think that's been the more historic view, even of Protestants. It's only in fairly recent times when the apocryphal books are just utterly unfamiliar to us and therefore scary. But if you actually pick them up and read them, I don't think they'll scare you so much. I think they will also impress you in general, um, the way we've been talking here as not quite fitting. Um, There are some that do, like, is it the Wisdom of Solomon, the Psalms of Solomon also, where the verbiage does sound like Bible, but then you have a story like Bell and the Dragon, which just kind of feels sort of needless. It's interesting, but... It's awesome. I love that story. (laughs) What is it contributing to (laughs) theology? I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But we want to distinguish these different uh, kinds of, uh, well, what can I say, not biblical books. So let's list them out here. We got the Apocrypha, which is also called the Deuterocanon sometimes. And I think there's a little bit of... um, they almost completely overlap, but not completely. Then you got the pseudepigraphal yep. works. Mm-hmm. Um, pseudepigraphy meaning? Uh, fake, false. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the Gnostic Gospels, which come from later. Um, I I listened to Dr. Kruger <laughs> say what I, he read, he said in the book. And uh, one of the things he said in the interview straight from the book. Most authorities are not self-authenticating. Let's shift over now, not to negatively what are the books that we reject, but the ones we accept in which we hear Christ's voice. Um, How do you authenticate the ultimate authority, he said. You know, we're clearly in the realm of presuppositionalism. Um, I, I remember when that first started to dawn on me. There's no court above the Supreme Court, as it were, you know, if God is speaking, I can't appeal to some higher authority to say, you know, could, could you vouch for him so I can make sure to trust him? Does that argument work? I, not all evangelical Christians and careful biblical thinkers are presuppositionalists. I don't know where you guys land in this room. I don't need to know. Um, 
But does that work for you? And when did you start to understand that? That's a heavy question. I'm not quite sure whenever whenever I thought about that. Canon, Canon was obviously not something we thought about in Sunday school uh, very often. Um, it was it was hard enough just getting there. And so uh, talking about Canon would have been just wild, uh, especially in, as a youth. But I know that for me, studying scripture, reading scripture, it as we've talked about before, whenever the books of the Apocrypha, like they didn't sound like Jesus, the ones that we do have form this whole so all of the books, even though they have different authors and they sound different and they have different themes, they still sound like God and they still talk about the same figure in the same way. And I think that even though like I didn't have an understanding of self-authenticating, like like the scripture, like I'm not consciously thinking about it. Like I think I just knew that internally, just reading the books of the Bible. I remember a few years ago, whenever I read the book, the whole Bible, uh, in one three-week period, I just blitzed through all 66 books. I remember thinking afterwards, and this is this was after seminary, and I've read the book, the, the Bible before in its entirety, but not in that quick succession to get like that broad overview real fast. I remember thinking like, wow, this thing as different as it is, is very similar. Like it's, it's, it's all like, there's a reason biblical theology works so beautifully, even when we have different schools of thought on it, it like, because everything interconnects so well. And I think that that speaks to just scriptures, uh, self-authenticating nature because it all works. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. One, uh, just the, the diversity of scripture in terms of, in terms of author genre when it was written and yet the amount of internal consistency within it is mind blowing, um, that it tells one story, uh, in so many different ways. And then also, yes, the, what you said, Mark, the answer, simple answer to your question is yes, it works for me. I remember when it dawned on, or it didn't dawn on me. I was taught it in, in uh, Bible school. And, and I thought, you know, I think about that passage in Romans, who are you, oh man, to judge God, um, paraphrase. Um, and I mean, that really is a presuppositional statement. Like you, you, ha- you have to accept an authority over you. Um, and I think it was either Alistair Begg or Al Mohler that I, I heard say this in a documentary, I think on Canon, and the name is escaping me right now. Um, but something like one of the ways that I know that the Bible is truly God's word is the way that the accuracy with which it diagnoses my heart. Um, and I, yeah, to Dan's point, just the experience of reading the scripture um, it just, you, you do, you hear the voice of God speaking very truly to you and you know it. Yeah, and it's very faux pas these days to like make an uh, an argument to emotions and how how you, but like it it's very accurate though. Like that's exactly how the scripture works and that's exactly what what my experience has been with the Bible. And so many people have had that same experience too and that's that's uncanny. So okay, how do we distinguish our view because I would say the very same thing. I I hear the voice of God. I hear the voice of in particular, my shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the scriptures, it all integrates. Um, despite the diversity, there's a unity in the message. How do we distinguish our viewpoint from the one that Dr. Kruger himself named, the Mormon viewpoint? He didn't go on to elaborate, but I believe what he's talking about is the phrase that they would use, I read the Book of Mormon and I had the burning in the bosom. That is a feeling, a subjective experience. So we're we're all saying we've had a, a subjective experience. Well, we might not use that particular terminology. Um, how do we distinguish our viewpoint then from the Mormon one? Yeah, it's interesting. I had never heard um, his idea of sort of self-authenticating scripture kind of applied to the canon. 
Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, in checking out his book and kind of digging into that a little bit more. It, it is interesting and it's, it's tough in some ways to probably separate that concept from the fact that we do have a tradition where, you know, the canons were sort of set in stone by, you know, the early church fathers. It'd be interesting to take a step back and take all the separate components of our Bibles and look at them without that context. It would, it, I don't know what we would think, and maybe we would come to the exact same conclusions, but I, I'm, I'm interested in that idea of self-authenticating, and, and maybe there is a, a notion of kind of subjectivism to them, or at least a danger of mm -hmm. that when we take it that way. And maybe if you've read the book, you can answer that more. Yeah, I think your question is um, points out how important it is not to base your you know acceptance of the canon solely on your subjective experience of reading the text, because like you said, okay, a Mormon can read their text and have and report the same experience. Um and so then you do fall back on, okay, so well then what are those attributes to use Dr. Kruger's language of of the canon? Um, and and then you have a more objective you know, rubric, so to speak. He still is self-confessedly circular. He's yes. getting these attributes mm -hmm. from scripture, which is consistent not only with a self-authenticating view, but with the basic idea that we've been talking about, that this is God speaking. And to whom are you going to appeal to vouch for God? So on the one hand, yeah, I feel in our scientistic culture, you know, influenced by modernism in particular, that a little weakness there. That was why it was an Achilles heel, because I am pulling in the subjective and the, the scientific part of me wants to have something entirely objective and fixed and eternal that I can point to. But actually, wait a minute, that that's God. And, and again, who is going to prove him? How do I put him under the microscope and evaluate his statement? So you would expect that the words of God come without this sort of extra set of uh, proofs. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And like I said, I want to kind of dig into the book. I'm sure he unpacks it a lot more than in a 20-minute interview. But I'm wondering, for example, say Martin Luther, reading the book of James, would say that potentially does not contain the voice of God because he saw something in there that uh, was, was different than a grace salvation. Yeah, not justified by faith. Abraham was not justified by his faith. Yeah, I, I, but of course, then the end of his life, he comes and says, uh, that I, was, I was very wrong sure. about that. You know, not in so many words, but, you know, in, in his own Luther way, I'm sure. Um one of the things that that is interesting about the Mormon view of the Bible versus maybe evangelicals that Mormon view the Bible of the Bible with the Book of Mormon especially doesn't have they don't necessarily have I guess the attributes or evidences I would say as a Baptist you know a Christian they don't have they they do not have the history nor the nor the um, any kind of other objective, what we consider objective evidences that would back up the Book of Mormon. That's always been a pain point for the Book of Mormons that it doesn't have this history. It's off in some ways, uh, whereas the Bible seems to be continually. There's new evidences all the time. Of they'll they'll find you know archaeologists will find rooms that accord with something that happened in you know the historical books, the Old Testament, or I mean a, a gamut of things every year it seems. So I think that there is a mix within within the Bible, or, or of a view of canon as appealing to us as people subjectively, but also showing itself forth as true because of what we're discovering about the world. I don't know if that's making sense sure. or not. Yeah. Craig Evans was on the Bible Study Magazine podcast talking about archaeology, biblical archaeology, and he used the word um, corroborates mm -hmm. the Bible rather than proves. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's true. Yeah. I felt that was helpful because I don't look to biblical archaeology to prove the truth of Psalm 51 
let alone a 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. I mean, how could archaeology prove the theological meaning of the death of this man 2,000 years ago? I need divine revelation for that. Nonetheless, I would expect, given what 1 Corinthians 15, which is the famous passage about what the gospel is, what it what it says is Jesus died according for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried. So here's the theological statement tied with this thing that happened in space-time history. Christianity is bound to history. And then it says he was raised and he was seen. And that's part of the gospel. When I give the gospel, I make sure to include all four of those things. Died for our sins, buried, raised, seen. So Paul has no trouble appealing to evidences. I tend to think of evidences being, uh, I think of them within the overall framework of faith. So I recognize nobody ever comes to any evidence without any kind of faith. They always have it. I'm just going to take God's word for, um, for everything and try to look at every evidence I see through his lenses. But it's not as if we eschew, you know, want to push aside evidences. The Bible itself does use them. I want to uh, highlight a word that you used a bit ago, revelation. I think to me, that is the uh, I don't know, concept, truth, what have you, that opens up this conversation. In a world where the skies don't break open and God doesn't speak to man, then a circular, you know, a circular argument like this is a problem. But when you're talking about revelation, you have to you have to think, okay, what are we dealing with here? We are dealing with a text that records the voice of God. And that just changes the game entirely. And so I don't know how you actually have a conversation about canon without holding that or at least acknowledging that and interacting with it. Yeah, this is all relevant to people who are trying to achieve or to promote biblical literacy because we do need to know as Bible readers, at the very least, that people have really thought carefully about these things and not just recently, but over the centuries. But ultimately, I find that new believers, like there's one in my church, it's just really exciting. I got an email from him today about prayer, and he's so interested in everything about prayer and doesn't take any of it for granted. It's really refreshing, and I told him so. I find that I don't have this problem when I'm talking to people like that because they're so excited about hearing the voice of God and seeing it in the scriptures. They're just taking it all in. This tends to come a little later, this question does. But if you, listener, are trying to achieve biblical literacy and have wondered at all, how do I know that these are the right books? My coworker has a different books, set of books in his canon. At the very least, here are some thoughts to get you started and some Bible verses, in particular the ones about uh, my sheep hearing my voice that, that you can reach out to. Uh, this is not something that uh, is brand new. Uh, the, the Christian church has been thinking about this for a long time. Thank you guys for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I always enjoy the insights that come out of this group. And may we just all uh, pray, you know, silently as we end that the Lord would use his word to bring that kind of confidence to people that they are hearing divine revelation. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events. Workflows that walk you step-by-step -step through your Bible study. 
notes and highlights, powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com fundamentals. You've been listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Our producer is Kaylee Joyce. Our audio technicians are Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood. And you can know that this section of this episode of the podcast belongs in this episode of the podcast and was not added by later generations because you will recognize this voice. And my children are too young to be podcasters. This is me, Mark Ward. Thanks for listening.